Hello, and welcome back to Lower Decks, a Star Trek podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman, and I want to know what you're thinking. Tell me what's on your mind. <laughs> and I'm Valerie Hoagland, and um, I am coming at you in corporeal form um, so that you can hear my voice. But really, I've evolved beyond this. Well, we are, uh, I'm not actually sure if either of our jokes uh, really suggested what we're doing today, but what we are doing today is Errand of Mercy, which is the 27th episode of the first season of Star Trek, the original series. This aired on March 23rd in 1967. I mean, there's a, cor- there's a being that is only corporeal so that we can better understand it, but has evolved beyond that is like the plot of hundreds of Star Trek episodes. <laughs> yeah, that's so, right. Did not narrow it down. <laughs> yeah, my joke certainly did not narrow it down. Um, but this episode, Errand of Mercy, otherwise known as the first episode that has Klingons in it, was written by Gene L. Kuhn and directed by John Newland. This episode was nominated by one of our really awesome, really generous Patreon supporters. And we want to say thank you so much for that support. It has been so much fun being able to cover episodes that we know mean something to members of our audience, not just random episodes that a, a number generator has uh, has picked out, which has been our, our normal mode of operating here. Uh, it's just so much fun when we know someone wants us to do this episode. Yes, thank you so much for your patronage and support, as always, um, and for inviting us to do these fun episodes that are meaningful to you. Though today is not um, only full of excitement, it also has some some sadness and some grief in it a bit, because we have some other less exciting news, which is that this episode, dear listeners, is our last episode of Lower Decks. For about the past year, or close to the past year, we've been really struggling to to find time to record episodes. And when we rebooted Lower Decks, when it was clear that uh, as a new parent, I was not going to be able to cover the third season of Discovery, we actually had a pretty nice bank of episodes that would give us a, a, a cushion in the event that we needed to you know, cancel recording sessions, things got in the way and so on. We have used that all up. We've even fallen behind. And Right now, like doing this episode, this is actually the closest that we have ever been uh, to recording an episode and then releasing it. And the thing is that we already know that we just can't get an episode out next month because of our our schedules. And we also have come to recognize that that situation is just not going to improve. And so we're just going to bring the show to an end today. But I want to be clear that it's it's just this show. The rest of the network is still going to be here. Uh, most of those shows do still have at least a year's worth of episodes in the bank in case of emergencies. But also, this is not going to be the last time that Valor and I record a podcast episode about Star Trek. We're still going to be doing our regular Patreon episodes. We also did hit our crowdfunding goal to cover the TNG films, which we're very excited to get started on. And we do hope that people will stay subscribed to this feed as well, because uh, there might be some fun surprises in the future. But even though this is not really the end for us podcasting together, we do still want to take a moment here to thank everyone for joining us, for listening to the show, but also a special thank you to those of you who have supported the network by joining us on Patreon or commissioning episodes or really even just by spreading the word about our shows. It has been a lot of fun to do this show and and also a privilege to do this show for you. So thank you. 
I know on air, um, Glenn is often the one that talks about crying. Um, I've been crying this morning. Um, we always have a little chat um, for a bit, catch up before we start recording. Um, and it's been a lot of my tears. Um, this is a sad moment because we love coming together and having these conversations, which will probably continue behind the scenes still with Trek theme cocktails. Um, but we especially love sharing them with you in this more public way. And I, you know, I won't speak for you, Glenn, but this has been such a fun part of who I am um, for the last, what, four, four and a half years. Um, and something that we never thought that we would do that we conceived of in a bar together um, <laughs> on a cold Philly night, I'm sure, or a warm Philly night. I don't remember what time of the year it was. Um, and with all that being said, if you don't mind, you can stay subscribed to the channel because we might have some fun surprises in the future, even off of Patreon. Yeah, this is a tough announcement to make. I, I never really thought this would happen. And it did also come about, I think, fairly suddenly for us as well. But we are going to continue. As I said, we are going to continue on Patreon. We're going to be doing the TNG films. And in fact, uh, I should talk about the time frame for that just so people are are aware. Uh, because as I did say, we also can't possibly get an episode out next month. But our plan is to to try to finish episodes on all the TNG films over the summer and to, to get those out as we have them completed. And I'm pretty jazzed about that. I'm I'm really excited, at the very least, to make Valerie put up with me talking about Dixon Hill for at least an, an hour. That's going to be really fun for me. And uh, I look forward to doing that entire series. That's going to be a, a ton of fun for us, I think. But yeah, let's, uh, let's shift our attention to the episode at hand here, which is Errand of Mercy. And yeah, as Valerie said, this is the episode in which the Klingons make their very first uh, appearance in Star Trek. And it looks like very late in season one, almost near the, the end of the, the season. The setup for this episode is that the Federation and the Klingons have been on the brink of war. Uh, this is a matter of some disputed territory. And as we're coming into this episode, we learn that war is certain to break out because negotiations have failed. There's an area of space here with a, a single habitable planet, uh, and this planet would be perfect for either party to use as a base against the other. And so the Enterprise is on its way to this planet. Uh, this planet's called Organia. And so the Enterprise is on its way there. And the mission is to prevent the Klingons from establishing uh, uh, such a base there. And, and I just want to emphasize that the mission is not to establish a base for the Federation. I think that's going to be an important uh, talking point here. But it turns out that the Organians don't want the Federation's help. Kirk and Spock end up stuck on the planet when the Klingons uh, occupy it. They, they have a landing force. They occupy the planet. Kirk and Spock are stuck there. And so uh, a big chunk of this episode is Kirk and Spock operating behind enemy lines, uh, blowing up depots and trying to disrupt communications. And Kirk is especially annoyed that the Organians won't help them. And in fact, annoyed that the Organians don't even see the Klingon presence as disruptive or threatening or bad. And in the end, the Federation and the Klingons are about to have a space battle near this planet, and it is a battle that will likely decide the war and therefore also decide the fate of at least this part of the galaxy. But uh, turns out that the Organians actually are all-powerful, non-corporeal beings of pure energy who can manipulate reality as they want. Or, you know, something like that anyway. But the, the point is that, hey, they have the ability to just flat out prevent the Klingons and the Federation from going to war. 
uh, just by wishing it. And so they do. And they make their wishes known as well to the heads of state. And this war comes to an end. And the Organians then, you know, wrap this all up nicely by explaining that a long time ago, they actually had bodies. They also were warlike, but now they are peaceful energy beings. And they hope that the Klingons and humans can join them in that form someday. And so, yeah, this is a pretty big episode, really. There is a ton going on. I mean, you know, especially with the introduction of the Klingons. But I think let's start with the big theme here, which is pacifism and war. Kirk despises the Organians for their pacifism. And, you know, I'm saying pacifism. I mean, I think Kirk here is actually really talking about cowardice you know, in the in the text of the of the show. And he is kind of a jerk about it when he says that even though he despises the Organians for this cowardice, he and Spock are still going to continue to fight the Klingons on their behalf. And at the same time, the the main Klingon character, Kor, says that Klingons and humans are are very similar to each other, not ideologically, but they're similar in that they are tigers. Uh, they are predators, hunters, killers, and that it is those qualities that make the Klingons great and also make humans great. And I guess the idea here is that although Kirk and Kor do have ideological differences, they both still like violence. They like performing violence. They like being men of action, maybe to quote the Princess Bride. But we, the audience, right, Valerie, we're being shown that this is not cool. And it really struck me on this viewing of this episode that this is kind of a bold move here because Kirk is more or less kind of a baddie in this episode. Oh, yeah, I'm very, I'm very anti-Kirk in this episode. One thing that is kind of strange for me is that while I very much agree with, I think, what the episode is ultimately trying to say, we only get that in the last five minutes of the episode where the Organians explain themselves and, well, the Organians have been trying to explain themselves the entire time. Maybe we should say the part where Kirk and Kor actually listen to the Organians for half a second, um, but where we on screen get that explanation of everything, then I'm like, oh, okay, this is a really cool commentary. But the other four 40 minutes of the show doesn't feel like a commentary on anything, um, or at least not anything that I would necessarily um, want to get behind myself. Um, so in terms of like how much screen time they're giving to one thing versus the other, I think we could call into question like the the message or intended or received by by this episode. And also, yeah. This is, you know, I'm thinking of us being on the heels of just having recorded about Discovery Season 3 and talking about the Federation as a vehicle for imperialism and saviorism um, and often white saviorism, which will be another point that we can hit in this episode. But Kirk really steps into that. You know, we often call into question, is Starfleet a military or a, a diplomatic body? And Kirk literally says in this episode, I am a soldier, not a diplomat. Um, so this just feels a, like a lot of the what are undertones in the rest of Star Trek about, you know, negative ways we could view the Federation um, and Starfleet are really, really on the surface overtly here in this episode. And, you know, the show is admitting it in a way. Yeah, I mean, we're going to have to talk about the you know the context of this in the, in the 1960s. But I will say that a big thought that I had here in that line about you know, being a soldier rather than a diplomat, and all I can do is 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 tell you the truth. 
I just thought it's a good thing that Kirk is not a diplomat because why well, he sucks at it. But also <laughs> thought like, how different would this episode be if this were Picard here, right? And and you could almost do this exact same setup, have the whole like sort of first act of this episode be largely the same, and then tell a totally different story when you've got uh, you know if you've got Picard here, and that would actually be a fun exercise to to do. But I want to also go back, Valerie, to your your point here about how we don't find out really what is the theme of this episode until the very end because that i don't think is the best way to tell this story but of course when this episode aired in the 1960s a part of what's happening in the the mechanism of telling this story is that the writers want this to be a mystery like why why don't these people care that their planet is being occupied by by people who are clearly hostile why don't they care that the klingons are are executing people in the public square 200 people at a time over and over and over again why don't they care about that that's a mystery that we're supposed to you know be yearning for that to be solved and so we can only get the solution to that mystery at the end but it does have this problem here then where it buries the theme that then only really makes a lot of sense, you know, on watching the episode again. And in a landscape where this is it, you air this episode on Friday, people watch it live and will never, ever see it again. I think if you're trying to convey a message to an audience, this is not the best way to do it. And so that is something, you know, if I were to do some story doctrine on this, that I would change. I would I would have it, you know, you could keep the revelation about there being, you know, pure energy to the end, but I think it should have been a lot more upfront about their pacifism and seeing war uh, for any reason as being a, a type of evil and being uh, an impulse that people need to advance beyond. That should have been more upfront, I think. Yeah. And it, it makes me wonder, you know, if... I think we can commend them and be excited that this is ultimately the the theme of the episode. And it also, one thing I was trying to say is it makes me wonder what the writers were really actually trying to do or work out for themselves in this episode. Because it feels a little bit like they felt more aligned with what the majority of the episode was and then like came to this other conclusion right at the end or something like that, right? Because we're still take we're going through this extended experience of this other way of viewing the world that is very um, aligned with, with both how Kirk uh, and the Klingons are seeing things. So experientially, it feels like they were really doing something else and we were receiving something else as well. Yeah, I'm with you there. I, I I really would like to be able to have uh, erased my memory of ever having seen this episode again, to have watched it, you know, for the first time again, to see how I felt at the moment of that revelation, and and just then to also right to see if I'm really rooting for Kirk and agreeing with Kirk throughout this episode. I just don't remember, you know, if I felt that way the first time I watched this episode decades ago. But I think it's a fun exercise, right, to put ourselves in the you know I don't know on the couch, I guess, of the original intended audience for this show, you know, people in America in early 1967 and and thinking about what is the 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 context for war and it's particularly the type of war, the type of military conflict that's being presented here is the early, and, and I guess by this point, we could say the middle phase of the, the Cold War, though it's the early part of the middle phase of the Cold War is perhaps where we, where we are here to make things really complicated. And I expect that you're right, Valerie, that I think most of the audience would have seen things Kirk's way here, would have really cared about the different agenda 
that the Federation has from what the Klingons have, that the Klingons are here to conquer and occupy, but the Federation is just here to protect and defend, even though the mechanism of doing that isn't actually going to look all that different from what the Klingons are doing, but that that is a difference that would, I think, really have mattered to the audience in 1967, seeing this in the context of the Cold War, which has the United States and uh, NATO and, 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 and members of other alliances as well, engaging with third world countries in exactly this kind of way. And and that phrase, even third world country, means specifically not yet aligned with the United States or the Soviet Union, and therefore kind of a, a battleground like this. And that's what we're seeing being played out here at the moment that the Vietnam War is is really starting to, to ramp up, the Vietnam War being exactly this sort of thing. It's a, a war in which the United States, or at least the way it's being presented to the American public, where the idea is we have to protect people from the the communists. You mentioned protect and defend and, you know, the audience likely aligning themselves with Kirk. And, and I think, you know, when I bring up the issue of saviorism, I just mean to point out that it's protect and defend totally regardless of like the actual will and consent um, and needs of the people you are claiming to protect and defend, right? It's thinking that you know better and putting you in the hero role. Yes, absolutely. I think that's the sentence I, I left off my, my explanation about Vietnam there, right, is protect and defend Vietnam from the communists, whether or not the Vietnamese people actually want to be protected or defended. And that's a pretty, and that's a complicated issue. The question of whether or not they did or how many of them did that I'm not sure we've really got the time or space to go into here. But I think broadly speaking, what's being depicted here is something that we could call Cold War imperialism that very much has some good intentions at its core. And in in fact, there's a, a really fantastic novel uh, about this by one of my favorite writers, Graham Greene, uh, that's also been turned into a film, uh, many films actually, I think, called The Quiet American, that is about Vietnam. It's about the beginning of the American phase of the Vietnam War, which is a war that was already happening that we took over from the the French. But it's about the, the, it's about the transition from the French War to the American War, told from the perspective of a British, uh, an, an aging British diplomat who's observing the young and enthusiastic and perhaps naive, but definitely not innocent, uh, American CIA operative. It's a absolutely fantastic novel about exactly this. And it does feel in some ways to me like Errand of Mercy is a very loose adaptation, actually, of that story, where we are getting a third party observing us and perhaps not seeing us the way that we want to see ourselves. And so in that case, you know, this is Star Trek holding up a mirror and asking us if we like what we see. This is the second time in recording recently um, that we've talked about um, the Cold War, Vietnam, and Graham Greene. <laughs> um, <laughs> And there's a lot of rich stuff to discuss um, and think through and debate in regards to everything that you have raised, which we won't have the time and space to do today. And maybe we're not the best people to do it as not scholars of those things or people that lived through them um, or impacted them in those ways. 
I think as always, the the thing I want to, a lens that I want to bring to watching Trek in particular episodes like this is, can we hold the intention next to the fact that the impact was still harmful? And that is the most important point. Again, you know, some of the things that are kind of harmful about this episode are things that um, I, as a, a white person, am not the one to uh, speak experientially about. But, you know, there's a there's an intention and there's an impact problem that we're already entering into even in just trying to talk about the uh talk about war right absolutely and you know i think we can maybe shift actually into to thinking about this and maybe we already have right but to thinking about this from the perspective of the or organians and there are some really interesting things going on here uh, like anthropologically uh, even just in the very setup even in the teaser of this episode Spock explains to Kirk, he's kind of giving him like the, you know, uh, brief information about this planet. He's briefing Kirk before they get here. And he tells us that there is a, an official scale of cultures uh, called Richter's scale of cultures. Uh, presumably Richter is the, the scholar, anthropologist probably, who came up with a scale of cultures. And Organia on this scale is rated a D minus, which... Um, I think that we can assume is not a good grade. Like this feels like very much like a letter grade. <laughs> you know, it's not like when we say M class planet, right? D minus is a thing you get on your report card in America and it's not, it's not good. Right. And the, the D minus rating is that this is a, a pre-modern planet. It's a planet that certainly doesn't have any uh, industry. It hasn't gone through uh, some kind of industrial revolution, probably hasn't also gone through, uh, in fact, certainly has not gone through uh, the agricultural revolution or, you you know, the second agricultural revolution, maybe I should say. And so from their perspective, it is uh, it is it is primitive. But when they actually get down there, uh, Spock is shocked to discover that this planet is not just primitive, it's 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 actually stagnant, right? That it, it is that this society hasn't made any advancement, that's Spock's word, uh, advancement in material culture for tens of thousands of years. They're shocked at this and and kind of appalled. They think something is wrong here. And this kicks in for them, I think, this this savior impulse, right? Of we can also not just protect these people from the imperialism of the Klingons, we can bring these people nice gadgets and a, a better way to live. And this shows up in the dialogue with the Organians when Kirk is trying to persuade them to let him establish a base here so that they can protect the planet from the Klingons and they don't want it, right? And he says, okay, but like I can sweeten the pot here because I can also build for you a modern society if you'll let us put a Federation base here. This, of course, is exactly what the United States did during the Cold War, was go to third world countries that were regarded as primitive in some way, stagnant, in some way behind and and say, look, we need to put a base here. We, we need a base here for uh, nuclear missiles. We need a base here for airplanes or some other thing. Yeah, it could be something like, this is a great place for us to put a base where we can intercept Soviet radio communications, but we need to put a base on this part of the map that's in your country. We need your permission and support to do that. You're not giving it just because we've asked. Uh, so maybe if we offer to build some bridges, some dams, some schools and hospitals, maybe then you'll let us build the base there is exactly what Kirk is doing here. 
But of course, the thing is, both in this context, on screen here, there are Ghanians, but also the real world context going on in the 1960s is that maybe the people who are being offered these things don't really want them and don't see their own society as primitive or backwards or stagnant or just, you know, bad or, or you know, a D minus. Maybe they're happy with their culture and society the way that it is. And maybe we shouldn't be ranking other cultures <laughs> um, and giving them um, giving them scores like this. I I really appreciate everything that you just added to the discussion. And you know, the saviorism comes in, and we see this with the Federation often in Trek, and it's really heavy handed in this episode. Is that modern society is code for? Western and militarized, right? That's what that code is for. And, uh, you know, US centric, really, because this is, after all, an American show. And you're right, we're sitting in the context of American imperialism and Cold War imperialism here. And so it's centered upon thinking that our way of doing things is better. Um, And regardless of what somebody else says, like, we just know better. Uh, and this will be better for you. It's very close-minded. Um, it's very kind of violent in that way. And this is really highlighted in the episode through the fact that the Organians try like five times to say, you don't understand. You're not listening. And then like every single time, Kirk just barrels through them um, or gets a communication. We just, you know, and because... Uh, this is uh, a pacifistic culture. They don't ever really um, stop him from interrupting them. Um, I guess they feel they have like the safety and security of that. And it does make me wonder what a different episode this would be if if the Organians, if the object of the imperialism here spoke were given the screen time and the lines to speak back more forcefully against the forcefulness that Kirk is coming at them with. But instead, it's always this like, smile and nod, smile and nod. And, you know, that's replicating, you know, some problematic power structures in and of itself and not giving us an opportunity as an audience to really see the the pain of being silenced in that way um, until, until the end. But again, we never really see the Organians so, I keep switching between Organians and Organians. Um, sorry, listeners. <laughs> um, but we never really get the chance to see them totally speak their mind or point out that they are being harmed here and dismissed and ignored and treated as other and inferior. Right. I mean, they are, you know, playing a little bit of a game here with the Klingons and the, the humans and and trying to teach them a lesson. And so, you know, when once you have seen the episode and go and watch it again, as you know, I guess at this point, you know, decades on, we have all done, you know, it's easy to see them as uh, it's easy to see those smiles as smug, <laughs> maybe not smug, smug's not right, uh, amused, I guess, right? They're amused at these lesser beings not being in on what is kind of a joke for them of we're going to let let you play this out. We're going to let this spin out a little bit, but we're not really going to ever let you do anything bad. We'll let Kirk make his speeches and get actually really upset and even go around blowing things up. But ultimately, you know, none of it's going to matter. We're not actually going to allow anyone to be harmed here because we're kind of magical creatures who, you know, are, are all powerful. I mean, they're very Q like before we ever actually have Q invented in, in TNG here. But as I said earlier, you know, that, 
I don't think really quite works for me. It's not how I would have wanted this episode. It's not how I would have written this episode. I do wish, as you're suggesting too, Valerie, that the Organians had made had had more agency or, or, you know, been exhibiting that they've got more agency during the course of this episode to let us know more explicitly that what they're, what they're doing here in this story is holding up a mirror for the Cold War and saying there is a third way here, right? It's, it's, this doesn't have to be divided into either we're with the Klingons or we're with the Federation. It, there's there's an alternative view here that was hard, I think, for people who were involved in the Cold War on either side to to take stock of, to see, right? And the perspective that's really being shown here, or the, or the perspective to which the mirror is being held up, is the American perspective, right? This idea of, one, we need to protect ourselves from a hostile power that has weapons of mass destruction that can destroy the whole planet multiple times over. We have to protect ourselves from that, protect our allies from that. But also, part of the way that we can do that is by going to places in the world that aren't like us and helping them be like us. Because if the the more if more of the world is like us, then the world will be a safer and better place. And obviously, places that aren't like us are only not like us because they haven't been able to pull that off yet. And so we will offer to help them do this thing that obviously all people would want to do. But in hindsight now, the Cold War is you know over, been over for decades at this point. We know that that's not actually how people felt about this at all, or certainly not how all people in in all places where this was carried out, felt about this. And it's also clear, you know, watching this text, watching this story from this moment, it's clear that people knew that at the time. And this episode is clearly a criticism of this Cold War imperialism that sees itself as a type of saviorism, right? This episode is saying it's it might be saviorism sometimes. Maybe. That could be true. But it definitely is not all the time. And there are clear instances in which we are not listening to people tell us no thanks. I wonder if you think it's also, okay, so it's a criticism of Cold War imperialism in a way with the fault of also kind of propaganda for it for 40 minutes. <laughs> it's like five minutes of a criticism of it and 40 minutes of propaganda for it. And in some ways, I think is like kind of what we're mincing words about. But I'm not sure it's a criticism of war. And I'm not sure it's a criticism of making enemies out of people. And I say that because of the racial dynamics of of the episode. Um, but I wonder what you think of that. Right. I, I think there's a subtle thing that this episode is doing. And this is a place where we need to, to try to put ourselves back on that couch in 1967 and think of who we would be in 1967 if we're, you know, adults old enough to be watching this TV show. Although a huge chunk of the audience, I guess, was, you know, 14 year olds. But if you're in your mid 20s, your 30s, your 40s, you've got some experience of, of, of war. And here I'm, I'm speaking specifically of the, the Korean War and the Second World War, right? That there's a good chance that you have been involved in a war fighting the Nazis, fighting people who were very, very clearly baddies in the plainest sense that that can be. And that experience is really at the, the root of American Cold War imperialism, this sense that we have actually just had to go to war in order to fight people who wanted to conquer the war and exterminate subject populations. 
And that is a boon. That's a good thing. It's good that we won that war. And there are more forces of evil like that in the world. And in fact, we're pretty sure that one of them, the Soviet Union, is just going to try to pick up where the Nazis left off. And we need to protect ourselves from that. And we need to protect other people from that. That's how the Cold War, that's how Cold War imperialism gets started. It gets started out of these good intentions, but also gets started out of an actual experience of executing those good intentions. And, and this is something that Graham Greene nails so brilliantly in his novel, The, the Quiet American. And so that's the experience that people are going to have watching this on their couch, where they're going to side with Kirk, almost certainly here for those 40 minutes, and say, don't you understand that we're here to protect you? Don't you understand that the Klingons are, are not just us who speak a different language? They're bad in ways that we are good. Why can't you see that? And then we do get that flipped at the end, right? Where we get this third way, where the Organians say, actually, look, from our perspective, and we did say this earlier on, we said this very early in the episode, but Kirk, you weren't listening. From our perspective, the two of you are basically the same. It, it makes no difference to us what your form of government is, or that you want to build a dam or not build a dam, that you're going to build hospitals for us and they're not, makes no difference. Because what we want is to be left alone, and any violence is bad violence. I see. So you're proposing that the very thing that we're complaining about, about what gets screen time and how much of it uh, is actually an intentional bait and switch, like pull the audience in, think that they get to agree with Kirk and then watch Kirk kind of get it handed to him back. Absolutely. And this is the end of the episode, right? Where, where Kirk actually, you know, we're back on the bridge. Uh, we don't get quite a laughing freeze frame, <laughs> you know, to end this episode, but we do get the little coda where he and Spock talk things over. And Kirk says more or less that he can't believe how much he wanted to fight. Even though, actually, if you asked him, he would tell you that he's someone who values peace and that that's the the value of their society. But yet, in this situation, he found himself really wanting to fight this war and that this was a lesson that he needed, right? That's, That's the lesson that we end on. That's the message that we end on. Something that's really coming to mind for me as... um as maybe important to name as part of the context of, of visiting this episode in 2021, um, gosh, just barely as we record in December, <laughs> um, uh, is that, you know, you're inviting us to think about who the audience would have been at this time, right? Um, and they, I'm sure they absolutely could not envision that this would be true, but what Star Trek is today is something that's available internationally um, at, at any time, you know, if you have internet access, which is obviously um, uh, a large uh, resource issue in our contemporary world. But so it's it's no longer just for that person, right? Like we're coming at, coming to it now to try to imagine what the entire world and and, you know, plethora of different intersecting experiences might be watching this. It's not just, you know, the equivalent of Gene Roddenberry, a World War II vet, you know, an older cis straight white man sitting down watching this who has been through this experience. It's an entire world of people that are now coming to Trek. And I think these episodes just land really differently. Um, That doesn't mean that we don't consider them of their own time. I just think it gives us, uh, you know, more things to, to 
hold in our minds and consider and think through when we go, okay, what if someone else were watching this episode, though? Then how does it seem? Right. Well, and I think you mentioned something earlier, Valerie, that we a thread that we haven't tugged on on yet, but I want to take us back to that, which is the depiction of the Klingons here, right? This is the first time we get Klingons. This is the first Klingon episode, and they are depicted here. The, you know, the, the visual language of of the Klingons here is to suggest that they are they're, they're Chinese communists, right? Which goes straight to the contemporary experience of of the Vietnam War and the contemporary experience of the or you know a, a decade ago experience, I suppose, uh, but but lifetime experience of an audience here uh, of the Korean War as as well. That is something that. Um, Someone watching this episode for the first time, uh, 20% of the way through <laughs> the, the 21st century, right, might not notice. In fact, almost certainly would not pick up on. But you're watching this in the 60s. This is clear. This is intentional. You know exactly what's being suggested here. There is, you know, in prepping for this episode, I wanted to do some more reading and some more learning. Um, and of course, you know, Memory Alpha has an entire page on the depictions of the Klingons, which perfectly maps out. Um, they, you know, they look like this at this point, and then their forehead ridges changed in this way, and then their hair changed in that way. And like, you know, it's talking about that stuff more surface level. But what I was interested in was the history of the racial coding of the Klingons, because that is something that has changed and continues to change even up until, you know, the most recent depictions of Klingons in Star Trek Discovery. And so I came across this YouTube video um, by a YouTuber named Jesse Gender. Um, I don't know anything else about the the rest of um, Jesse's channel, um, but there is a video called Klingons and the History of Racial Coding that you can look up on YouTube. It's about 20 minutes long, um, and I thought it was an excellent primer as an introduction to just what what is happening here with the Klingons and how are they being depicted? And then if you're interested, how does that kind of change as the Klingons move forward in the franchise? Um, but through watching that and doing some backup reading of my own, um, one thing that I learned, and I, I knew this, um, which is that they were definitely envisioned by Gene Kuhn and Gene Roddenberry to um, be an amalgamation of, um, of Russians and Chinese people um, as, you know, stand-ins for communism in this, you know, Cold War imperialism vein that we've been talking about. Um, and one of the things that really stands out is that they seem to have picked aspects of Russians' society and stereotypes that they almost still see as noble or worthy of respect, um, such as, you know, there's this moment in in this episode in Errand of Mercy where, towards the end, I think, where we hear Kor say, oh, we're actually like, you know, we care about the collective more than individuals. Um, and this is something that that the writers um, of Aaron and Mercy sought to take from Russian society as a way to code this as Russian, though you can see that that's not quite so bad of a characteristic on the face. Um, and then you have the the yellow face um, of this episode where it is, which is what you were talking about being immediately obvious. It's because these act, these white actors are in yellow face um, and the depictions of the Klingons as um, 
as warmongering and savage and swarthy and less than and uh, less clean um, and more violent and all of these things that we see as stereotypes um, of Asians in in yellow peril at this time and to this day. Um, and so it's, you know, I think can let us call into question um, who did we see ourselves as more aligned with um, and who did we see ourselves as um, superior to, even within the context of drawing on both the Russians and the Chinese to kind of create, you know, this character um, or this this alien race. Something you didn't mention about the depiction of the Klingons, Valerie, actually, that I think is is, is more of a visual clue to who are these people an analog for? Who are the Klingons an analog for in our our real world? Is the facial hair? The, you know, I think even more so than the the swarthy makeup that they're wearing. It's the the facial hair that their their facial hair is what has come to be called, and I think would have been called in the 1960s even the the Fu Manchu, which is the uh, name of a uh, a fictional character in some stories by uh, by Sax Romer from the early part of the uh, 20th century, who has this type of facial hair. Uh, as it's described in the text and then shows up on the cover of magazines and so on in this way. And that, to me, I think is the, the clearest signal of we should be thinking about uh, communist China here. And then I think the other part where we get that also these are not just, you know, space Chinese communists, not they're not just space Maoists, but that these are also space Soviets is actually in the language. Not that we hear spoken Klingon here, but we get names. One, we get Klingon as a name and we get core as a name. And that K sound is a sound that calls to the American ear, uh, calls to mind to the American ear, uh, Russian, right? Just think about even just like names of famous Russians that you know, which is, I think, mostly going to be classical composers like Tchaikovsky and Rachmaninoff, right? That the K and the V sounds in particular suggest to us Russian, right? So anytime you get those types of sounds in speculative fiction uh, in the 20th century by an American, that's who you should be thinking of. And so the auditory cues there say Soviets and the visual cues say uh, Maoists. And the point is, of course, right, for us to understand, us, the audience sitting on our couches in 1967, that what's being depicted here on screen are the people in the real world that we think of as the bad guys. But then here's an episode that's going to ask us to, to think about how different from them we really are, because it's asking us to think how different from them Kirk really is. And Kirk is the, sta- is the stand-in, and Kirk is the stand-in for us, right? You know, if you go back um, and look at images of anti-Asian propaganda um, and uh, of, you know, coming from this uh, ideology of yellow peril, you will see that the depictions look almost exactly like what they have done with the facial hair um, and other aspects of the makeup and costuming um, to these Klingons. You're absolutely right to point that out. And also, I think something that maybe I'm trying to to call into question is why did we choose a visual communication for one of these things and a a sound and ideology based communication for the other versus, you know, having the Chinese represented in an ideological and sound based way, but then having some white people, you know, white actors acting as white people in furs or whatever other Russian stereotypes we (laughs) might come up with, right? Like that was a choice. Um, And and that, you know, is a choice that is really doing something kind of harmful on screen. And why was that choice made? I think, right, this, these are the questions I, I'm asking us to to consider or just, you know, not we have to 
we probably can't answer them um, fully, fully here, but, you know, inviting all of us to consider these questions. And something, again, that I came across in the research that I was doing um, about racial coding in the Klingons is um, that Gene Roddenberry himself has spoken about, um, or maybe it was DC Fontana, actually, that said this um, about Gene Roddenberry, but that because he was, I think he was a pilot um, in World War II. That's right. He had been a pilot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that you know he was thinking that he was imagining an enemy that looked like the enemy that he had personal experience with um which again we're conflating um all asian people because their gene Roddenberry's experience would have been with the japanese um and not the chinese but again like you know <laughs> we're making choices and those choices have consequences um and and that's what i mean to point out Right. Roddenberry was a a bomber pilot in the Second World War operating in the Pacific Theater. And the whole geopolitical situation here we've been talking about as the Cold War. It very definitely is that. But actually, we get at the end when Kirk and Kor are both being scolded by the Organians and they're pleading their case to the Organians, right? Kirk says, we have legitimate grievances against the Klingons. The grievances that he lists and then Kor's rebuttal to it actually are not the geopolitical situation of the Cold War. They're the geopolitical situation of the 1930s, the geopolitical situation of 1940, the geopolitical situation of December 7th, 1941, the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Kirk says, we have legitimate grievances against the Klingons. They've invaded our territory. They've killed our citizens. They're openly aggressive, and they've boasted that they'll take over half the galaxy. Those are all things that could be mapped onto the Japanese empire of the 1930s and the early 1940s. I mean, the invading our territory and killing our citizens, not until uh, 1941, of course, but but much of this could also characterize the 1930s. But Core actually, even more clearly, is presenting the Japanese perspective of the 1930s, right? Versus the United States perspective of the 1930s, when he says, you've tried to hem us in, cut off vital supplies and strangle our trade. You've been asking for war. This is what the Japanese said in defense of the attack on Pearl Harbor, something that the United States and and other people around the world regarded as a villainous sneak attack, right? That you don't bomb anybody unannounced. You declare war, then you go to war. You don't go to war and then declare war after the fact, right? This, of course, was a huge rallying cry for the United States entering the Second World War. But I think it really matters here that we have Gene Roddenberry, someone who killed people in this war, right? He was a a combatant in this war. He dropped bombs on people. He has killed people as a a, a soldier in, in war. But here he is presenting both arguments here, the American argument and the Japanese argument for how they got into this war and who's in the wrong, who's to blame for it, and having a third party say, it doesn't matter, you're both wrong because violence is wrong. And it's something you need to get over. You need to be better than this. It's possible to be better than this. You can be, and you must be. And it's this resonates with me, right? As someone who, as a young person, was a part of this violence. Now, decades later, two decades later, thinking about that and uh, perhaps not feeling great about it. So, you know, next up, I'm, I'm kind of curious about 
you know, how you feel about some of the comparison points moving forward with Klingons, given that this is their first uh, entry into the Star Trek universe and they were never intended to be um, what they have become. They were meant to be just another standalone enemy episode. Yeah, right. I mean, this whole episode ends with the Organians saying, and this whole setup that we've got here, this whole world building setup that we did is over because there's this massive power that just says it's over. But yeah, there's some really interesting things about the way the Klingons are depicted here to make this story work, to make this story work in such a way that the Klingons are uh, space Maoists and space Soviets, uh, or maybe I should say space Leninists and space Maoists, but also space World War II Japanese as well. And one of the ways where that, one of the ways where we get them clearly being depicted as uh, Japanese in the Second World War is that Kirk says the Klingons are a military dictatorship and that they they conquer and enslave uh, other planets and that war is their way of life. Uh, but then later, Kor actually says, and, and you mentioned this earlier, Valerie, Kor says that the Klingon Empire is strong because it acts like a unit. Each of us, uh, this is a direct quote, each of us is a part of the greater whole, uh, which you know so- sounds more, more communistic here. And I just wonder, yeah, how, how does this actually fit the way that later Trek writers have depicted the Klingons? Like when we get Klingons, even later in maybe in TOS, uh, the TOS films, the next generation and so on. Uh, and do we see Klingons being depicted as a military dictatorship? Is, is that how you would describe Klingons? No, <laughs> I think they drop this. I don't think this comes yeah. back at all. This is, it, it's, I think anybody who's familiar with the Klingons from the TNG era of Trek um, would be very surprised by a lot of things um, in this episode and in TOS. And this feels a lot more Borg than Klingon. Well, yeah. I mean, the whole thing that's supposed to be scary about them is actually you know, the, the collectivism here. Each of us is part of the greater whole, right? I mean, the Cold War is uh, individualist Americans fighting against exactly that, fighting against collectivism. So that's supposed to be something that's very, you know, very scary there uh, that then does get replaced by the Borg in, in TNG. And yeah, in part because the way that I think Klingons are depicted in TNG and actually even in the TOS films, and actually, frankly, maybe even in The Trouble with Tribbles, you know, the second season of, of TOS, is actually as just as, as as individualist as the Federation is, as as not certainly not being a military dictatorship with a value on collectivism. Uh, there's also something we get here about the Klingons being a kind of police state. Core is, he, he says that all Klingons are under constant surveillance, even he he in this moment is under constant surveillance that he's being you know watched by video all the the time right this is not something that we see uh, in in the way klingons are depicted after this where what we get are individuals who are heavily focused on 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 matters of honor and certainly by the time we get to wharf by the time we get to tng klingons have, have, I think, completely dropped actually being uh, space Soviets, uh, space, you know, communists in any way, have retained actually being Japanese culture transplanted into, you know, a speculative fiction setting in outer space in the, the near future, but actually having dropped the context of the Japanese empire of the late 19th and early 20th century and actually gone back to depicting Klingons as a, a type of, um, of, of samurai. 
again, a really interesting moment, you know, to return to this in 2021 and, you know, a collective culture where we care about each other and community doesn't sound so bad. Right. So it's just, it's so it's, everything's just so different watching it today. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I actually find, you know, we are hot on having recorded for Patreon an episode that we did on the third season of Discovery. And it's, you know, that's the episode that we recorded, although it's some some time has elapsed, but that's the episode that we recorded most recently to this one. And these are about the sort of most opposite approaches that we could have as viewers to Star Trek, right? Watching something that is, you know, like hot, it's contemporary, it just happened, right? This is just, you know, some of these episodes only a little over a year old, right? Versus watching this episode that was created before either of us was alive, a totally different context, a context that we weren't present for. I think I find myself, generally speaking, enjoying this type of, of context, in, in part because it lets me you know, stretch my legs as a, uh, a trained historian a, a little bit more. Uh, but also, I think part of the fun for me is actually seeing the history of Star Trek itself, right? Seeing how did the writers envision the Klingons in this episode and what got dropped. The, you know, And even by the time we get to, to the first season of Discovery, which is a lot about Klingons, second season too, actually, maybe even the second season more so, where... You know, if the second season of Discovery is only just 10 years before this episode, I mean, I don't think I would say that Laurel is a military di- dictator, right? She's she's the chancellor. And certainly in the first season of Discovery, we've got Klingons being very much a, a kind of uh, uh, 16th century uh, Japanese feudal society. I mean, that's definitely the, the model there in Discovery. And so it's interesting to go back and watch this episode and see how that was not there in the original concept. And that this really important line, this line that is so important to Kirk, is just not something that other writers ran with. Uh, that was a lot of fun for me to do. I think at this point, we are at risk of just repeating points we've already made, which we will do gladly, but maybe we should do it off air <laughs> with a drink in hand and spare listeners. Yeah, I, I did invent a cocktail for this episode. One of the other things, though, that maybe uh, we left off our list, so here we are going to go back and repeat ourselves, Valerie, but one of the things that uh, clues us in to be thinking about the Klingons as Soviets is that once Kor uh, knows who Kirk is and has Kirk in his uh, his makeshift office here, is that he invites Kirk to have a drink, and uh, the drink that they have is clear. It's vodka. He doesn't call it vodka, but it's, it's vodka, right? That's what we're meant to see there. Often, in fact, almost always, right? If there is an alcoholic beverage on screen, that's where I want to take my cue to make a drink. But actually, in this case, I I did not do that. I I went a, a different direction here. And that's that I wanted to think about the theme of this a little bit more, the theme of violence. And there's a a famous drink called the Blood and Sand. This is actually a a drink that takes its name from a a famous boxing movie of the the 1920s. So a boxing story, not a war story, but nonetheless, a story about violence and and is actually fairly graphic by the standards of uh, a century ago and about people who do violence and that's there in the name of the story and in the name of the drink this idea of 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 blood and sand and i think that that phrase blood and sand i think really could also encapsulate the the entire history of the the 20th century right the the militarism the violence of the 20th century all throughout to think about the pacifist message of this war and also how much this episode is thinking about 
violence and war in the 20th century. And so the Blood and Sand is a, a scotch drink. Uh, it's a, a scotch drink that uses orange juice. And so that's what I have done here. But instead of take uh, actual scotch, I've taken Drambuie, which is a, a blended scotch that then also gets uh, some honey liqueur and, and also some native herbs to from Scotland uh, thrown in the mix. It's a really nice, warm, uh, mildly sweet and, and spicy drink. It's actually great for wintertime. I had picked up a bottle of it because actually it's mentioned in the science fiction novel Antarctica by uh, by great writer Kim Stanley Robinson, uh, who went to Antarctica and discovered that everyone in Antarctica is drinking Drambuie all the time, uh, that they love to have it out in the camps because it keeps you warm or makes you feel warm when you're done back in your tent for the evening. So I had some Drambuie on hand and wanted to use that instead of, uh, instead of pure scotch. So uh, what we're going to do is take two parts of scotch and then one part of orange juice. Uh, And then actually, we're just going to put some Angostura bitters in there. So it's a little bit closer to the proportions that you would use for a Manhattan than for an authentic blood and sand. I'm going to shake this up in a shaker with some ice and then strain it into a glass. And I hope that while you sip on it, you'll take the Organian's message seriously and think about who we might be if we didn't have a need for violence, if we didn't have an impulse for war. Yeah, and you can ponder... Letting people make their own decisions about their own well-being. <laughs> um, and, you know, right, not having that impulse to think we know better than other people and, and to, to not listen to them um, and, and their perspectives and their needs, um, which is an awful lot to think about as you sip Drambuie. But, you know, you have the time. I mean, look, this is what sipping Drambuie is for, right? Or sipping any cocktail, right? Uh, think about some heavy, heavy problems in our, in our world. We might be approaching cocktail hour differently in our contemporary lives. <laughs> <laughs> that might be true. I mean, yeah. How, how long into uh, pretty heavy isolation are we <laughs> at this point? I mean, I haven't been to a bar in literally years. So yeah, I'm not sure I'm doing it right anymore. But uh, yeah, uh, I think now that we've gotten to the point where I'm lamenting just basically living in my basement all the time and only talking to people from my basement, it's time to close this episode out. So that's going to do it for today. And That also is going to do it for Lower Decks. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Valerie Hoagland, and I'm not crying, you're crying. Yeah, this is a sad moment here to be bringing the show to a close, although this was a really great episode that I think got at uh, the heart of uh, some of the things that Star Trek does really great, and also let us talk about Discovery at the end here, which is, of course, the origins of this show. But yeah, signing off, this is... um, This is something that's a little bit difficult to do. So I think all I will say here is thank you so much for being a part of this fun adventure for us. And uh, I think second star to the left and straight on till morning. Thank you all for being part of this beautiful and fun adventure with us. And thank you, Glenn, for being here with me every month and for the Patreon episodes in between. Until the next time, stay spacey. 